Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll examine declining birth rates in the United States and what it could mean for the future. Our guest is Dr. Kenneth M. Johnson. He is senior demographer at the Carsey School of Public Policy at the University of New Hampshire and professor of sociology. After we speak with Dr. Johnson, we'll turn back to Washington and take a look at the most recent inflation numbers that were released on Tuesday. Spoiler alert, they weren't great. And whether Congress is making any progress on passing the annual appropriations bills so that we don't have a partial government shutdown by the end of the month. But first, we'll look at the uh, demographic trends. And our guest, Dr. Ken Johnson, is a nationally recognized expert on U.S. uh, demographics. His research examines national and regional population redistribution, regional and urban demographic change, and the growing racial diversity in the United States population. Joining the conversation is Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson. So, uh, Dr. Johnson and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Really good to have you. Well, uh, Ken, you've been tracking birth rates in the U.S. uh, and is detailed in an August 2022 data snapshot from the Carsey School. There seems to be a pronounced uh, downward trend. Um, You note that the fertility rate in the U.S. grew slightly in 2021, but that the number of new babies born last year was the third lowest number in 40 years. So can you just uh, from a 30,000 foot level, uh, give us the, uh, what, what the trend is looking like. Sure. So uh, the U.S. birth rate has been declining almost continuously since 2007 when the Great Recession began. Many of us thought that after the recession ended and economic growth resumed uh, that the birth rate would turn up, but that hasn't happened. In 2021, there were about 3.65 million births in the United States. That compares to about 4.3 million in 2007. So about 600,000 fewer births, and yet there were almost 9% more women in their child prime childbearing years. So in other words, we've got fewer births, even though we have more women of childbearing age. And the birth rates have declined quite significantly during that period. And I calculated that if the birth rates of 2007, which were not terribly high, not compared to the baby boom, for example, had they continued through 2021, we would have had about 8.6 million more babies born during that 14 years than we actually had. So that's a fairly significant decline, recognizing again that the number of births in the United States ranges around about 3.7 million a year or so right now. So 8.6 million fewer births in 14 years is a fairly substantial amount. 
And that's, that has implications, you know, first for hospital maternity wards, then for businesses that have something to do with children, like the old Toys R Us, which isn't around anymore. And one wonders if it's partially because there are so many fewer children. Uh, on into the school systems, which are going to have a lot of empty elementary school rooms right now compared to what they would have had, and then on into the labor force. This has fairly significant implications. The fertility rates themselves are near record lows. There was a, a few more births in 2021 than there was in 2020, but we're talking about a difference of two or three percent. The drop in the birth rates were greatest for the youngest women. So in other words, the teenage birth rate has dropped very substantially, which many demographers see as good news that we have fewer teenage children having children themselves. The other group that saw a substantial decline in the birth rate was women in their early 20s. Once you get into women in their 30s, their birth rates have held fairly steady. Now, they haven't gone up, but they haven't gone down very much. These birth rate declines have occurred across all racial and ethnic groups. So births are down for non-Hispanic whites, for Hispanics the most, but also for blacks. So this is not just part of one part of the population or another part of the population. It's very extensive. It's occurring all across the country. These are fairly substantial changes. One of the things that I've been watching very carefully is I, for a long time, I and many other demographers thought that the downturn in births was a function of the economic recession and its immediate aftermath. It disrupted jobs, it disrupted families, it delayed marriage, all of the kind of things that typically happen during a recession. But the birth rates have not come back up. The children that were delayed, many of them have not appeared yet. And now the women who were in their 20s in 2007 or 2008 are now in their 30s and reaching the end of their childbearing years. So the only other time we have that's anything like what's happened so far is the Great Depression itself in the 1930s. And the young women who began their childbearing years at the beginning of the Great Recession, say women who were 20 in 1930, never made up for the births that they didn't have as young women. So the question increasingly is whether these births, which many of us thought were being delayed, are simply going to be foregone completely. And those births that drop, I mean, that gap of eight, over 8 million children, while some of it may be made up, it doesn't, it increasingly seems unlikely that it all will be made up. Just as a, uh, as a terminology matter, when we talk about the fertility rate, exactly what is that measuring? Well, there's a number of different measures of the fertility rate. The one that's used the most is called the uh, the general fertility rate. The general fertility rate is the number of births per thousand women, 15 to 44. And right now that general fertility rate is around 56 births per thousand women in that age group. There are other measures of the fertility pattern. They're all quite consistent in showing significant declines so. though. And if we were to, uh, I've, I've heard the term replacement rate and that we are Below replacement rate. Right. Um, what is that? Uh, what, what 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 is the appropriate replacement rate? I guess. Oh, well, the, generally, the replacement rate of the population is considered to be about two point one babies per woman over her fertility career, um, because some women can't have children. So to make up for that, it has to be slightly above two. 
Right now, the measure of total fertility is about 1.66 babies per, per woman. So that's below the general fertility. I mean, that's below the replacement rate. It's still higher than the, than the fertility rates in much of the developed world in Europe, for example, or Japan. So U.S. fertility rates are still higher than that, but they're significantly lower than they were when they were closer to two or so uh, at the time the Great Recession started. Obviously, COVID has affected the death rates in the United States, and we've had well over a million deaths because of COVID. In the early parts of the COVID pandemic, the number of births nine months after COVID began also diminished. So around the first of, uh, in 2021, early 2021, the number of births were down even compared to uh, prior, even, even compared to the low birth rates of late, this, uh, late 2020. They've come up a little bit, but uh, they still are among the lowest fertility rates we've had in the last 40 years. So there has been some modest increase. Nobody knows for sure how long it'll go on. Um, and so when you combine these, this decline in the birth rates with the increase in death patterns in the United States, we have an increasing incidence of what we call natural decrease. Natural decrease is when more people die than are born in a place. The United States has never had natural decrease at the national level uh, for a year. It had, did have it for several months during uh, COVID. But 26 states had more people die in them than be born in 2021. 26 states. The most that's ever been prior to that was five. And 2,300 of the 3,100 U.S. counties had more people die in them than be born last year. That's considerably, that's 73%. The highest it had ever been before that was a little bit over 50%. So these, the impact of COVID, although largely grouped in the affected had on deaths, because it's occurring at a time when the U.S. birth rates are already low, the combination of the two has produced the lowest growth rate in the U.S. population uh, in at least 100 years. I think before I go to Steve, they just since you mentioned more deaths than births. Uh, I noticed in the latest CBO long-term outlook, the Congressional Budget Office, they projected that by 2043, that's the tipping point where there would be more overall uh, deaths than uh, births in the United States under their projections. So, um, Steve, want to jump in? Yeah, so thanks. So yeah, so you mentioned earlier that there's sort of these two competing theories that, you know, one theory is that women and families have just decided to have fewer kids, and there simply will be fewer births in the future. The other theory, though, is that, you know, because more women are going to college, more women are in the workforce, they're getting married later. And so the, the idea is that, you know, the, that the births that we're missing out right now are primarily among younger women, and that as these women get older, you know, they're going to get married, they're going to get sort of settled in their career, and they're going to decide, okay, now I'm going to have the kids that I didn't have when I was younger. And so we're going to see this sort of rebound in births at older ages. So what, what evidence is there out there that sort of supports either that women simply are going to, at all ages, are going to have fewer kids versus there's going to be this sort of catch-up effect that the younger women 
for simply delaying the births and that they're going to catch up and have more births at, at older ages. Right. I mean, that's the big question that demographers don't have an answer to right now. Um, certainly among younger women, the opinion data is beginning to suggest that they just intend to have fewer children than earlier generations did. So in other words, part of what's going on may be a generational change, which happens to be now wrapped up in uh, first the Great Recession and then the impact of COVID itself. So at this point, again, in opinion surveys, Younger women are saying they're probably going to have fewer children than the generation older than them. The big question about how many of those 8 million births were delayed and how many of them are not going to occur at all is still an open question. There are about 3 million women, fewer women who have had a child than we would have expected given the fertility patterns of the of 2007 or so. So that's 3 million women who haven't had a child yet who otherwise had those fertility patterns of 2007 continued would have had a child by now. Uh, how many of those are going to have children? I mean, it literally remains to be seen. This is an unusual, I mean, we don't run into circumstances like this very often where we have so, a massive recession followed by COVID with women delaying children. Um, so again, the only comparison we have is the great recession itself or the great depression when the births weren't made up. So you mentioned a, a generational effect. So, so younger women are saying they intend to have fewer, fewer children. So yeah. if you were to go a generation of, you know, the typical woman having less children, what sort of permanency do you, do you see from that? Others, if you grow up in a household and there are two kids, that sort of becomes the socialized norm. Uh, and so when you get to be an adult, you have two kids. But if you grew up in a household with only one kid, is that the socialized norm? And so when you grow up, you only have one kid. I mean, what is there any evidence that this generational effect sort of feeds on itself and becomes more permanent? Is there, you know, what, what's the, the evidence on that? Well, I'm not a big fan of making projections. To <laughs> so that's probably why I'm a demographer and not an economist. But um, Certainly, the tendency in the United States has been, except for the exceptional period of the baby boom itself, fertility has been declining in the United States. And it's typically better educated, higher income women who tend to have fewer children. They also have them later. So as, in, as more and more of the American population becomes better educated, that is likely to increase the likelihood of fewer families. Now, the other big issue in all of this is immigration. Uh, that is because immigrant women, immigrants in general, as you know, tend to be younger. So they're either in their late teens or early 20s. So they bring with them not just themselves, but the potential for children. And that's been going on in American history, you know, as long as we've been here. So immigration right now is at a, at a a significant low, if there were to be more immigration to the United States, there would be more women in their childbearing years. And traditionally, women, immigrant women have tended to have more children than native-born women. Now, the difference between the two birth rates is considerably lower now than it was, say, at the time when the Irish were immigrating to the United States at the, in the last century. But there is still a difference. 
So if there were an influx of uh, immigrants to the United States, again, if immigration picked up again, then that would have potential to bring more children into this whole equation that, uh, that we're talking about. So that's another big unknown, not just what women who are here now will do, but what's going to happen with immigration in the next decade or two. So we're seeing birth rates falling around the world. I mean, yes. You know, for example, we get a lot of, of immigrants from, from Mexico and, and Central and South America, and birth rates are falling there. So the question is, if immigrants come from a country that has a higher birth rate, they may bring that with them. But I guess there's some evidence that the longer they stay here, and certainly the second generation, they act more like natives than they do immigrants. And so right. that higher fertility may not sustain. That's true. I mean, but the, my point, I thought we were talking about the shorter term of the sure. next couple of decades. Mm-hmm. And in those next couple of decades, even though the fertility rates in Central and South America are lower than they used to be, they're still higher than they are than the United States fertility rate is. So an immigrant coming to the United States might be expected to have slightly more children than U.S. born population. And it's your you're increasing the number of women of childbearing age, as well as the likely fertility levels of that population. So uh, an influx of immigrants would likely increase the number of births in the United States, both because they have slightly higher fertility rates, but also because there are more young women of childbearing age. I think it's all part of a, uh, a larger pattern that really vexes policymakers, which is we need more people. Um, you know, I mean, just looking at the economic projections, uh, economic growth is projected to decline or stay pretty flat for the, as you look out into the future, mostly because of slowing workforce growth, which is part of the, you know, part, 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 partly because of the fertility decline, partly uh, because of the aging population and diminishing immigration. So it seems like uh, somehow or another, we need to uh, get more people into our future. For me as a demographer, the interesting thing is because is that demography is intertwined with all of these other things. It's intertwined with economics. It's intertwined with, you know, the standing of women in American society. It's intertwined with immigration. So yes, it's these demographic trends are very sensitive to a lot of different factors that are going on. Have you seen, uh, and this will be our, our last question for the segment, is, is there any sort of regional pattern within the United States or is it pretty much even across the board? Well, the, the declines in births have been widespread in the United States. Now, of course, some states like Utah have higher birth rates than other states like New Hampshire. They always have, and those trends still exist, but it's as if they all dropped. So there are regional differences, but by and large, this is a widespread trend. Yeah. So whatever is going on, it's, it's, it's affecting the entire population. As Steve mentioned, it's basically a, a, a worldwide phenomenon too that yes. we're going to have to adjust to. Well, uh, Dr. Ken Johnson, thank you for joining us. That's all the time we have for this segment, but it's a really fascinating uh, topic. And for people that want to uh, read more about this, they can uh, look at your data snapshot from the Carsey School, University of uh, New Hampshire. Is there a website people can check out for you? Yes. If they go to the University of New Hampshire's website and just type in Carsey, up will come the Carsey site. So, 
Well, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, uh, Steve. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We're going to be right back on Facing the Future with a look at the latest inflation numbers right after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. And we're going to pick up where we left off in the last segment talking about demographics. And we're, we're going to focus this time on the long-term budget and economic effects of the changing demographics in this country, driving some of the long-term unsustainability of the federal budget is the demographic consequences on things like our entitlement programs, Medicare and Social Security, other healthcare programs, and the effect that it might have uh, on the economy. Uh, just in terms of a slower growing workforce. Um, so, Steve, let me uh, let me turn to you just for some observations on the policy side. You know, you worked for a few years at the uh, Social Security Administration. You've been looking at uh, Medicare and, and Social Security projections for some time. What about these demographic projections, lower fertility? What what? impact does that have on the uh, future health of our uh, major benefit programs? Yeah. So, you know, demographics are, are really important. And the reason that is so is that both Social Security and Medicare are largely financed by payroll taxes. And so essentially what that means is that you have a working population who are paying into uh, the Social Security and Medicare trust fund. So every every you know month when they are every week or when whatever whatever their payday is biweekly monthly, uh, they get paid. And you look on your pay stub and you see that that uh, that FICA deduction, uh, which is your Social Security and Medicare payroll taxes, those go into the trust fund to pay the, the benefits of, of our seniors uh, for Social Security and Medicare. And you know right now we have you know, about two workers for every one retiree. And so that, you know, the payroll deductions are going into the trust fund and they're paying the benefits of the seniors. Now, as the baby boomers reach their full you know, retirement age, um, you know, that's gonna start declining. And of course, if, if birth rates continue to fall, that means there's fewer workers you know, moving into the, into the payroll tax pipeline going forward. And so, you know, just as a, as a sort of a point of reference, so the, the social security shortfall, so if you, if you look at what, you know, how, how much you'd have to change taxes to, to, to cover the shortfall in social security, it's about 4% of payroll. Now, the Social Security Administration assumes that fertility rates are actually going to go back up and that we're going to continue to have two births per, per woman over, over their lifetime. And so that shortfall is about 4%. Now, the, the Social Security also does what they call sensitivity analysis, and they vary some of their assumptions. And so they have a sort of a, a, a worst case scenario, and, and, and fertility rates fall to about 1.7, uh, as opposed to the 2.0. And that differential would change the shortfall from 4% of payroll to 6% of payroll. So you basically have a 50% increase in, in the shortfall over the 75 years. So clearly, the number of workers paying into the system is going to determine how burdensome the program is, how high the taxes will have to be, 
in order to, to support the, the elderly population. And the same is true for Medicare and, and, and for Social Security. So, you know, the, the level of fertility rates, of course, that also, you know, is affected by immigration, as we talked about in the last segment. And right now, immigration is down. The, uh, the actuaries assume that, um, you know, immigration will, will come back up after the sort of the pause that we had during the, the pandemic years. Uh, and so the country, the population is heavily dependent on, you know, rising, for, or rising fertility relative to where it is now, uh, back up to the two, 2.0 replacement rate, roughly, and you know, about a million, million and a half immigrants. And if, if those predictions don't come true, if, if fertility rates don't go up and the level of immigration doesn't go up and, and re remain at that level, uh, it just becomes much more costly um, for, for the, the working population to support the, the retirement population. So these are, these are two very important variables because it seems to me that they're really in flux and they're really important because, you know, as you said, if the, the long-term projections assume from the trustees anyway, assume that fertility rate goes back up to, to two, but it really hasn't been there in a long time. And it's the, the, the 1.7 number that you mentioned, which is the kind of the, the higher growth or uh, uh, higher cost scenarios is more consistent with what's actually been happening. Yeah, I mean, the, the latest numbers through the first quarter of 2022, so that the Centers for Disease Control publish uh, statistics um, on, on births by age. And so you can compute what is the sort of the age adjusted birth rate, which is what's known as the fertility rate. And the latest numbers are 1.68. So for the 12 months ending with the first quarter of 2022, we're at 1.68. Uh, which is slightly above where it was during the pandemic. It was down to about 1.63. So, you know, the numbers right now are below the 1.7. Now, I think it's, you know, reasonable to assume that we're going to get above the 1.7, but, you know, how much above that? I mean, the Congressional Budget Office, for example, just put out their long-run assumptions, and they are assuming 1.75. Um, so, you know, they could still be a little low, but but you know, there's a big you know there's a big difference between 2.0 and 1.7 or 1.8. Yeah, uh, it really and, does, you know, and, and, and as you say, sensitivity-wise, it makes a huge difference. Right, and, uh, and that's the, just a big unknown. Yeah, um, Tori, um, turning to the effects on the economy, you know, one of the one of the factoids that we harp on. I'm not sure mm -hmm. anybody really <laughs> seems to focus on it, but. It's just this drop off in the workforce growth and how important that is to long term economic growth. Exactly. I mean, <clears throat> economy can only grow as fast as its workers can produce goods and services. And if your population isn't growing, then that's, you know, one aspect of economic growth that's working at a disadvantage for you. Um, you had mentioned earlier, you know, CBO's projections of long-term population growth. And if you look at, at, at their estimates, you know, by 2043, they say the only reason our population is growing in the United States is because of immigration, right? Because our, our fertility rate 
is lower. We're not, you know, having enough babies to, to replace the, the people that are dying or our, our native population is dying. So the only way, you know, we actually have a population increase after 2043 is because of immigration. And when you take a look at <clears throat> our immigration policies, you know, over the last couple of years, we've basically, you know, made it impossible to immigrate to the United States legally. All we have here are, are, are illegal immigrants and your illegal immigrants are not necessarily the ones that are paying taxes, right? If you, if you have more legal immigration, <clears throat> you have higher educated immigrants, um, you, but, um, but you also have immigrants that are paying taxes on the wages that they earn here, uh, which helps you know, fund the, the, the federal government. Um, it also helps businesses grow. Um, I was reading an article in, in Forbes earlier, um, and the demand for H-2B visas, these are like your service, uh, seasonal service employees. You know, these are the people that work in your, your ski lodges in the wintertime and your hotels and your, and, uh, you know, shuck oysters in, in New England, et cetera. Um, you know, there's a cap on those H-2 visas, H-2B visas every year, and, and they're awarded by lottery. And the demand for those visas through April of September of this year was four times the cap. Okay. So businesses, you know, Americans aren't willing to take some of these jobs. Um, and so we can't, and then businesses can't legally import uh, th that labor. And a lot of times what we're seeing now is those businesses then have to shut down. And when those businesses shut down, other jobs that are, are related to those businesses also lose employees. So there's actually research out there that shows, you know, when, when you've got a, a, a healthy immigration, legal immigration, you also have healthy employment uh, because of the ancillary jobs that are associated with that type of immigration. Yeah, they tend to be uh, more entrepreneurial. I mean, a lot of immigrants that come into the country begin their own businesses and employ people. Uh, and so there are some, a lot of projections show an increase in productivity to the economy mm -hmm. as well, which you need. You need, you know, uh, not only economic, uh, uh, not only workforce growth, but greater productivity in the workforce. But mm -hmm. the, the, the projected drop-off in the future is much greater on the, um, uh, on the workforce. Immigration is one of the things that we, can do something about doing something about fertility rates is really, I, I don't know if there's a lot that government can do there. I disagree. You do. Okay. I totally disagree. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, we need to look at uh, making it easier for women to work as a parent, as a mother. Um, so, you know, uh, family leave policies, but also better childcare uh, support for, for, you know, making childcare more affordable um, that help women, you know, be, be in the workforce and be a parent. I mean, I know there are, there are a lot of women that are, are waiting until they are financially stable, for example, to have children and possibly can stay at home with their children. And when that happens, uh, you know, <laughs> that means your family size is smaller, right? Um, I think making college more affordable will also help family sizes. I mean, I know in my case, in my own personal experience, my husband and I decided to have two children because we knew we couldn't put three or four through college, right? We wanted them to get through college without debt. You know, so that was a decision that we made about the size of our family. Um, uh, raising children is really, really expensive here in the United States. You know, there, there are bipartisan conversations about uh, enhancing and expanding and making permanent a child tax credit that would, that, that would help 
<clears throat> you know, defray those costs. And, you know, that's a bipartisan policy. That's, you know, Marco Rubio and, and, uh, uh, Mitt Romney are, are Republicans, conservative Republicans working with Democrats on crafting, you know, changes to the, the child tax, uh, the child tax credit. So, yeah, no, I think there are things that government could do that could s- signal to, to women and families that we are pro-family, pro-child, pro-growth. Well, I think that that's true. I think that there are things that uh, I, I agree with you on that. I, I guess I'm not sure it would have enough of an impact that we uh, need, noting that the decline in fertility has been a worldwide phenomenon, uh, including in countries that do a heck of a lot more than we do in the United States. A lot of countries in Europe have very generous family policies and their fertility rates are as low or lower. So it's not clear that, yes, we could do a lot more to help and support families, but it's not clear that that would have a big impact on fertility rates. And that's the real policy dilemma. Well, clearly, this is a subject we're going to have to revisit. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And we will, because uh, demographics is a subject that we like to talk about, particularly as it relates to economic growth. That's all the time that we have for this segment. (laughs) But we, we, we are going to be back with another segment, this time looking at the latest inflation numbers. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm joined by Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. And we'll turn now to the breaking news this week of uh, inflation numbers. You know, every week, uh, every month when these numbers come out, uh, a lot of people are saying, well, this is the month. You know, we're going to really show (laughs) that uh, inflation has peaked and things are going down now. Didn't quite work out that way. Uh, Steve, you weren't fooled. You you (laughs) said that uh, you thought that the number would stay relatively high. Uh, What is behind your prescience? (laughs) Well, yeah, so so the new number is 8.3, which is up from from last month. And it's still, you know, in, in nosebleed territory above 8%. But yeah, the, all the commentators were saying, oh, inflation's going to peak, it's going down. And I, I think I pointed out the, the last time we talked about this, um, you know, we changed the way we count housing uh, in the inflation index back in the 1980s. We used to actually include the price of new housing. And they ch- had a methodology change, and they changed it from the price of housing to the rental equivalent of housing. And so now they sort of say, well, what would it cost you if you rented your own home? And that's what we're going to put in the CPI. And so I, when I went back and looked at this, I realized that when home prices peaked, which of course are not in the CPI, there was a delay of about 12 to 18 months. And then those higher prices showed up in the rental equivalent measure, which is in the CPI. And so when I looked back at what the housing prices uh, were doing over the last year, and compared that to what this, the rental equivalent measure was, uh, it seemed to me that those higher prices had not shown up yet in the rental equivalent. And I think that's that's what we saw this month, is that the housing component or the, the, the shelter component uh, of CPI was, was up pretty considerably. And so, you know, everybody was pointing to gas prices. They said, well, gas prices are going down. Well, but but gas prices while it's visible and, and everybody understands that, it's not a big component. Out of all the things that people buy, 
the amount of gas they put in their car, even at high prices, is not equal to their monthly rent or their monthly mortgage. Mm -hmm. And so the weights are different. And so when you when you talk about the CPI, you have to look at individual items, but you also have to realize how much do those individual items add to the total. And the shelter component is about 30%. So, you know, if if shelter goes up, that's 30% of the index. That can offset a lot of lower gas prices. And, and again, that's that's what we saw. So, um, Tori, I mean, some of the it was it was pretty broad based. Uh, I, I mean, so the the food. Uh, and uh, food was up and we were talking about shelter and, you know, core inflation um, Mm -hmm. actually ticked up a little bit. There's not a whole lot of good news to pick through here. Well, I, you know, again, I think this is one, you know, I try and put my Biden administration hat on my head and say, okay, how I'm going to spin this. And so I think, you know, there are different ways that you can look at this year over year. Inflation is still high, but at least on the top line, it's moderating, right? So Steve said, you know, the top line inflation number for, for August was 8.3%, which is high, but it's certainly less than 9.1%, which is what it was at the beginning of the summer. And when you look at core inflation, core inflation was up 6.3%. Core inflation, we mean that the, the excluding you know, food and energy, volatile food and energy categories. Well, that was up 6.3%, but that's down from the March high of 6.5%. Not much, but it's still lower. So, you know, if you're the Biden administration, that's what I'm talking about. It's like the trend is going down, the trend is going down. But when you look at month over month, um, this report was not what anybody was expecting. Um, Overall, you know, economists were expecting top line price level to actually fall one-tenth of a percentage point over the previous month. It actually rose one-tenth of a percentage point. And when you look at core inflation, that actually rose six-tenths of a percentage point in August over the previous month, um, which was more than twice what economists were expecting. So, um, you know, Steve's right. Energy prices are down, uh, but food and housing prices are still uh, much, much higher. Um, we know that uh, real GDP has been bouncing around all year in a weird kind of way because of these uh, the way inventories are, are accounted for. But we're not getting any kind of break from this. You know, if it, it, businesses have been buying and stocking up on inventories, and you expect when they get a glut of inventories, they reduce prices in order to get rid of their their glut of inventories. We're not seeing any price reductions associated with these huge glut of of, of inventories. So. Um, you know, and it's 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 a prices across the board. Um, healthcare, uh, food, housing. You're right. All right. So next week, uh, the Federal Reserve Board meets, and uh, everybody's expecting another move on interest rates. What effect will this have on on that decision? I, I think it's put the fifty basis point increase to bed, asleep. They put a nail in it. Um, you know, the, the, the conversation I think people are having right now is, oh, yeah, the Fed is going to raise interest rates 75 basis points. And there are actually people, you know, over in the corner saying it might even be 100 basis points. Steve? The, the next Fed move is going to be, you know, 75 basis points or three, three quarters of a percent. That's what they've been saying. They're going to stick to that. You know, I mean, th- there's this notion of forward guidance. The Fed doesn't really like to surprise people. Uh, and so they sort of hint at what they're going to do. But I think what will be the news is that they're going to hint that, yeah, the next time after the the, af- the next time after this time, <laughs> 100 basis points may actually be a viable option. And I think they're likely to signal that. Uh, and so it's possible, you know, if inflation numbers don't moderate uh, in September, that 
that 100 basis points will be on the table the next time around. Up until the release of, of today's report, inflation expectations about the future had still remained pretty pretty well grounded, right? Instead of you know two percent, we were around three percent. People were expecting a long term inf- inflation rate of about three percent, which you know it's not the two percent, which is the Fed's target, but it's not you know something that's that's ridiculous. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to watch you know, different surveys and indicators of inflation expectations moving forward after to this this really surprising inflation report for August? Well, my own expectations have gone up somewhat since the spring. <laughs> I have been surprised at how long it's hung in there, but I don't have uh, Steve's intimate knowledge of how it's constructed and uh, <laughs> the relative price of gas and, uh, and, and housing. Um, okay, so... That's the Fed's dilemma, um, uh, and we'll leave Wall Street to figure that out for themselves because we don't do that on this show. <laughs> Let's go back to the intricacies, back back to the the halls of Capitol Hill, where they're going to have to try to pass some appropriation bills to keep the government funded by the end of this month. Uh, a lot going on in the next couple of weeks. They haven't passed any of the appropriation bills. Yet and so the government is hurtling towards a uh, shutdown on September 30th or at the end of September 30th. Tory, what progress, if any, is being made towards uh, keeping the government open? Well, I, I want to give credit where credit is due, and I will say that House Democrats have managed to pass six of their bills. So it's not like nothing has gotten done, but the Senate's got nothing done. So Schumer's led Senate has accomplished nothing on appropriations, and that still leaves six bills in the House that they haven't done. But yeah, we're two and a half weeks away uh, from funding running out for the government in the new fiscal. You know, the new fiscal year starts on October first. Congress needs to provide funding for agencies so they can continue to war- operate after uh, September 30th. Um, and they haven't done that yet. They've got two and a half weeks left to do that. And as we know, um, sometimes these two chambers, they can, they can act fast when they need to, but uh, it, it takes a lot of, of drama to get to that point. And of course, the longer you wait to get something done, at least in the Senate with their requirement you know, for cloture and, and, and getting 60 votes, that means you're all you're giving more authority to a, a wayward senator uh, to say, no, I'm not going to give you unanimous consent to bring this continuing resolution to the floor, even though the government's going to shut down tonight, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, Schumer is definitely playing with fire over in the Senate. Um, and I, I think at this point, you know, what we know about the continuing resolution is that it will probably fund the government through mid-December. And of course, at 2022 levels, and we know that there'll be some anomalies in there for agencies that need the authority to spend at a higher rate at the beginning months of a fiscal year. Beyond that, <laughs> we don't know. Uh, we don't know what riders are going to be attached. You know, there's some concern about whether uh, you know energy permitting will be attached, whether the White House supplemental funding will be attached, whether there will be reauthorizations for expired or expiring programs. Uh, we don't even know at this point which chamber is going to go first. So there is still a lot of work to do and a very little amount of time. Any, uh, I mean, what are they, are they fighting about COVID money or Ukraine money? Uh, you mentioned anomalies and, and uh, supplements. Um, it, right. That seems like something that can be uh, perhaps negotiated. Right. So um, every time there's a CR, there's always some anomalies because there's some agencies um, that need to spend out their authorized appropriations earlier 
in a fiscal year than later. You think of like the Department of Education, which has to issue Pell Grants to students. You know, that money comes at the beginning of the school year, not in the middle of the school year. So they need the authority to spend uh, out at a, at a faster rate than they did uh, uh, previously. So that that's not really... Um, scandalous. That's usually that that's standard operating procedure in a continuing resolution. But this year, uh, President Biden also sent to Congress a request for $47 billion in supplemental appropriations. So on top of his, his 2023 request, he has more, more uh, a request for more money. Um, some of that is to uh, help uh, resupply the soldiers in Ukraine. So it's defense money to help the, the, the war in Ukraine. Um, but there's a good chunk of it, uh, about $22 billion in COVID funding and about $4.5 billion in monkeypox funding, things for testing, vaccines, therapeutics, et cetera. Um, that's, that's not getting a very warm reception from the Republicans in, in Congress. And of course, in the Senate, you need at least 10 Republicans to, to help get that appropriations bill across the line. So that's turning out to be very controversial. At, at this point in time, there's also some question of whether or not the CR will carry some natural disaster relief funding. So that still has to be debated. That's all the time we have for this week. Uh, thank you for listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'll be back next week. 